Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today, we're delving into a topic rife with controversy, polarization, and intense emotion. We're asking the question, how should Bible-based Christians respond to the Black Lives Matter movement? No doubt some of you will answer that we should all be out marching in full support, while others think BLM is itself racist and should be resisted. Of course, between these two extremes are many more options for responding to this issue of racism and police brutality. In order to navigate our way through these choppy seas, I've invited on Russell Brown, who offers an interesting perspective since he finds himself at the intersection of all three camps. Here now is Podcast 358, A Christian Perspective on Black Lives Matter with Russell Brown. Russell Brown, welcome back to Restitutio. So glad to have you today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to change gears and talk about another subject of great concern to many people, Black Lives Matter and this movement. In light of the whole subject of race, uh, could you just let people know where you're coming from? Um, you know, what is your experience with race and specifically what was it like growing up? If I said I had to identify myself as one race, I probably wouldn't be able to give you a straight answer. My dad is black. He's uh, grew up in Georgia. My mom is Irish. So uh, I guess that would make me, I've heard a bunch of different things. I guess it would make me mixed, mixed race, biracial. Growing up, my dad being black, my mom being white. I guess I really didn't see. And then the different areas that we lived in growing, I grew up in Providence for the first part of my childhood leading up to, I was, I believe 10. And it was Providence, Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. Yes. Yes. It's more of a diverse area in uh, Providence. Uh, then we moved to a town of, called West Warwick and in West Warwick, it was predominantly white. Um, I think even all the way through high school, there were other minorities there, but I think even in my graduating class, I was the only black one in my my graduating class but again i never really looked at it and i you know i i think growing up my dad's never really carried himself in a way where race was an issue my dad's personality is very he has a very bold personality outgoing and so when we were in areas and i was trying to think of all right was there ever a time where i remember my dad being treated a certain way because of his color and i really can't think of one I think a lot of it is because my dad carries himself in a way where it's just not in his head at all. And so if he shows up to somewhere and someone maybe even wants to uh, adjust the situation based off of his race, he is just very, I don't know what the word would be, but just very outgoing. Like he just jumps right into whatever the situation is and it's a non-issue for him and almost doesn't really give you an opportunity to do it. I asked my mom, I was asking her, hey, do you know any stories of just, you know, before I was born or just that you remember? And she, you know, she said there were times where uh, before I was born, before uh, when her and uh, my dad were there before me and my sisters were born, that uh, she remembers getting pulled over or having to uh, walk home like a, a really long way when they got pulled over on a motorcycle once. Uh, and she believes that race was an issue with that. But although there wasn't any like, you know, racial slurs that were thrown at my dad or anything. So again, growing up, I think us growing up in a Christian family, race wasn't really something that was put out there. I never felt like I wasn't really accepted 
because of my race. Now, again, my skin color, if you looked at me in the wintertime, I'm probably a little more pale and white. And in the summertime, I'm a little more dark. So, and, um, so I bet some people, a lot of times people look at me like, Hey, what race are you? Or what, uh, what's your ethnicity is and the other, um, yeah. because it's a little uncertain, I guess I'm not, I'm not extremely dark skin and I'm not extremely light skin. That's really different than I think what we're really hearing, you know, sort of like the majority view in America is that black folks and, uh, maybe biracial people have a lot of negative experiences not just growing up, I mean, because this incident with your mom would have been back in probably what the seventies. Seventies, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're and you're saying you're not even really sure if that was legitimately racist or not. Did she say it was racist? She felt that because uh, because of my dad's skin color, that the way that they were treated, she felt in that circumstance. Yeah, and so she okay. she has other All stories, right. but that was one yeah. of the ones that she told me. Yeah. So then she would have some stories about being married to a being a white person married to a black person um having having some some issues over the years and uh mm-hmm. but you're saying that with your experience growing up in Rhode Island in the 90s I guess yeah yeah 80s yeah, 90s, 90s mostly 90s, 90s right That'd be your, like your school years. What you, what year you graduated from high school? Was it in the 90s? 99. 99, 99 right. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, really looking at that time period there, that decade in the part of Rhode Island you were in, uh, you're saying that there wasn't, there wasn't much race stuff that you had to face. No, no. Like I said, I don't, I can't okay. even remember any experiences that where I had to face some kind of racism, kind of just went through went through the schooling years played sports did everything was around people and never felt like i had like any straight blatant you know racism directed towards me right right growing up did your dad or your mom ever talk to you about the police being harder on on black folks or that you had to be extra careful no no and again my uh my mom you know great god-centered you know, woman who uh, doesn't think of those issues. She thinks she's she's looking to raise us to be, you know, to love God. And um, so, like, those issues of race or anything like that really never came up. Um, and, again, like, if there was any situations, no. But, and then with police, I didn't, I, I was, again, I wasn't really somebody who got in trouble a lot or who had to deal with police. My interactions with police were, were kind of minimal. Uh, I remember my brother, who, who is uh, 100% all white, uh, he did have some interactions with police, and some of them weren't uh, the greatest, you know, just hearing, you know, hearing from my mom or hearing certain instances where uh, police weren't the best towards my brother kind of shaped my view a little bit of police uh, growing up. But me personally, outside of being, you know, the victim of a stolen bike or something else where I had to briefly talk to police, I really didn't have much interaction with them. Okay. So what would you say was your reason for becoming a police officer later on? You know, it, obviously, you just said you didn't really have a positive view of them. <laughs> uh, what what changed, and how did you end up becoming a police officer? Bad Boys One, the movie Bad Boys One. <laughs> no, I think uh, <laughs> right. You see, you see this movie. You see these guys who are actually like, you know, I was into the the hip hop genre of music. Um, I think probably if I say like, how did you carry yourself? Like the stuff that I was into. My friends were majority white i think growing up the boxing scene when i boxed 
growing up, they were a lot more uh, diverse in that. The music I listened to uh, was uh, a lot more diverse. But then, uh, so I'm in that culture, that you know, listening to hip-hop music, uh, into sports, into that stuff. And then when um, I remember seeing... I remember seeing like bad boys or you'd see like certain, certain TV shows about how policing was. Uh, I'm sure that shaped some of it. Like, Oh, here's actually police officers that are cool and like doing stuff. Uh, my dad was also in law enforcement through the military. And so that shaped some of it too. I never had this moment where I was like, Oh man, like I gotta, this is what I die for. I gotta be a police officer because I think even the music that I listened to was very anti-police as far as like hip hop music. Not like they weren't like blatantly, coming at them but like it was just wasn't supportive of police so it's weird because the stuff that i was listening to wasn't that wasn't you know pro police and whatever but i think i always had it in my head that i wanted to do something with law enforcement yeah there was definitely a point where i wasn't even sure if i wanted to do policing they threw out the recruitment thing for the city of warwick and uh uh, i knew where i wanted to go was somewhere federally and so but i know you have to work your way up and so i'm like oh listen i'm i was i uh was in security at the time work in security they threw out the posting for the recruitment uh, i remember my my security boss at that time was a retired state police officer and and so i was like you know i'm gonna i'm gonna try out for this i know the city of warwick was a good city uh to work in and i put my name out there i went through all the testing and i ended up getting in like the top 11 or something like that for the recruitment drive so so yeah then everything went pretty quickly like getting into uh to law enforcement i guess obviously you know the obvious answer as i started because this is right around the time that i started doing the recruitment drive for policing was definitely around the time that god was really secure in my heart for him and so the prospect of getting this position obviously having a heart to want to help other people and get in the community and dealing with uh, people. I didn't know it was going to be at the level that it was at, but it's like, all right, this is policing. This is what, it's just something that you can go out and serve the community and help them. I probably wasn't thinking of the other side of it, of the, oh, wow, I'm going to carry a firearm and, and uh, you know, you're also going to be having instances where you're going to have to confront criminals and this and the other. I wasn't the person who was like, oh, I want to join this because I want to go catch the bad guys. It was probably more of at that time with my heart is, hey, I want to, I want to serve, serve people and help people out. I see. Um, so how long have you been a police officer? So I just started my 14th year, 14th year in police. And, uh, okay. Just finished up 13. And you've done the majority of that on third shift, right? Yeah, I did eight and a half years on third shift. And then I moved to day shift in patrol and did maybe about two and a half years on there. Uh, maybe three years in there, and then I moved into a position as a school resource officer uh, inside of one of the high schools. And how long have you been doing that? So last year was my first year doing that. I did one one full school year as a school resource officer. And then COVID came and everything got weird. Then, then COVID came and, yep. Yeah, I got you. Uh, so let's talk about the perspective that you have on Black Lives Matter since you are black and white and blue uh you uh you can see this from a unique point of view that uh, many of the rest of us can't who are only seeing it from one perspective yeah i would probably start with from the police perspective just as uh i'm seeing theirs on a daily basis or just like through experience when i think of uh police and their job and just how they're trained initially Police officers are trained initially to, A, obviously stop the threat or bring 
restore peace in a certain situation. A lot of times when we think of these extreme natures, it's it's stopping the threat. If there's a threat somewhere, officers are trained, listen, stop the threat so that way you don't get hurt, nobody else gets hurt, and you can bring some peace to the situation. I think a lot of times when you have that mentality, if you think of, if I think of the training academy, you're there, you're using whatever force is possible to stop the threat. I think when police come into a situation, uh, a lot of it, whether the person's black, white, whatever, uh, a lot of the emotion, and we'll see this probably with all the groups, but a lot of the emotion that's first coming to them is fear. Like, so you know, you just take a, a typical traffic stop. You pull a you pull a vehicle over. Uh, especially, this is probably more at night too, and you're not you're not really sure what you're really getting into. But you pull a vehicle over. There's always this unknown, regardless of who it is. Um, now, maybe if you can see who the person is, and it's this elderly, you know, woman that you're pulling over, you probably might not have as much fear. But a lot of times, you don't even know the race of the person. Sometimes, when you're pulling them over, you you pull them over because you see an infraction, and you pull them over because something doesn't look right, or they committed some kind of violation. So when you pull them over, the automatic emotion that comes to an, a police officer is fear or when they have interaction with anybody you get called to uh, a domestic disturbance you're going there and your emotions your adrenaline's up your fear is up and so obviously the longer you do the profession the better maybe you'll be able to be to manage the fear and not have that tunnel vision but it still comes it's just a natural uh, defense kind of thing for for people so police officers there they have this fear they go they they pull somebody over and they they resort to their training or they have interaction with someone, they resort to their training. So I think with this animated or this, this uptick in fear, if something looks like it's going to be a threat to them or to somebody else, they react off of that. Now we bring into polite someone who's black and race. I'm sure a lot of times with police officers, even they uh, might have this thought in their head of, and in my city, obviously, we're not a very culturally diverse city. And so when you're dealing with people, majority of the white population, then you see somebody of minority in their head, they're even thinking, oh, listen, this looks like the person who fits the profile of the person in the city, neighboring city, and they're a minority. And so their fear automatically goes up. So they're doing whatever they need to do to restore the situation. But a lot of times it's just based off of fear. I think when I first spoke with you, uh, you had that, uh, the Jacob Blake uh, situation that had uh, happened. And so here police, they're called, they're called to a domestic incident. Um, and there was just so many, you know, facts that just like weren't, didn't really come out at first and some came out and there's still some ambiguity with a lot of stuff, but the call comes in that Blake is there. He wasn't supposed to be there. There was, uh, might've been some kind of like a restraining order. He, he wasn't supposed to be there. He had taken uh, females keys. And so police are getting all this information as they're going. Then I believe police were told that Blake potentially had a warrant too. And so as you're hearing these things, as you're going into the situation, your fear is amping up. Somebody with a warrant probably isn't going to be 100% compliant or they are going to know that they're wanted. And so they're going to probably do whatever they can to avoid that. It's a domestic situation going on. Maybe the who knows how the reporting party uh, who called up what their emotions were like too. And so if they're calling up and they're in panic mode. And so police are coming into the situation with their emotions high and the average person and definitely the average police officer, they're going in there already with this sense of and it's, it's probably to a fault, but they're going in there with already with this sense of, I need to go in there and I need to 
bring peace to this situation, hold this person accountable. This person has a warrant, so I'm going to have to arrest them. Who knows what that's going to look like? Are they going to fight against me like that person did three months ago? You have all these, you're thinking worst case scenario from the top down. And so is that the right way to handle it? From a safety point of view, maybe you want to assume the worst could happen and you want to be prepared for the worst to happen. But a lot of times that causes police to not maybe not handle the situation the best. So from an experience type of thing, I've come into these scenarios and I found that it has been helpful when you come into them to show up. And as you're trying to diffuse the situation, you know, not automatically, I was listening to, he's a Christian hip hop artist named KB. He says that every time he deals with the police, he always feels like he's starting at guilty and having to work his way out of that. I see. Yeah, the Jacob Blake situation, obviously, you know, he probably knew he had the warrant. He probably knew what he had done, you know, whatever the situation he was violating, you know, maybe a restraining order or shouldn't have been on a promise. So he he already knew he was guilty. But even if I'm going into a situation where I know the person is guilty, the automatic thing is to not paint the picture or zone in on that. To see the person as, hey, listen, you're a human being. We're here to try to sort things out, to try to figure it out, to try to bring peace to the situation. What's going on? I'm not talking to you as like you're already under arrest. You're a little kid or, you, you know, here I am, the higher up authority and I'm looking down on you. Now, does that work every single time? No. But when you go into a situation valuing the other human being and not looking at them as like, hey, this is a criminal automatically, a lot of times that helps with the other person's fear. You know, that rolls into the Black Lives Matter perspective. Now you have a Black person, what's their emotion? A lot of times they're having the same emotion, fear. You know, you think of KB saying that uh, I'm starting a guilty and having to work my way out of it. You know, he was talking about how he get he got pulled over. He had two officers come up to his car. You know, both of them they have their hand on their on their weapon already. Uh, you know, just on their as their weapons holstered, but they have their hand you know resting on it. They're not. That might just be a natural reaction to them, or they may be thinking fear. Uh, you know, I'm going up to this car. I got to expect the worst. I'm gonna have my hand on my weapon just in case. Is that standard protocol to have your hand on your weapon? No. It, it's not, but when you, the training aspect of stuff is your, you know, some of it's just like arresting thing. I was talking about this with another officer where he's like, why do we always put our hands like on our belt? You know, it's just like a natural, like you rest your hand on your belt. And so we're not, th- we're thinking, all right, this is maybe just like a comfort thing or it's an, um, you know, awkward. Uh, I'm in a moment right now where just things are awkward. And so you put your hands on your belt. And so like your gun is on your belt, but uh, so it's like a, it's a resting area, but you're also trained nonstop to be like ready to draw at any point. So when you get trained over and over and over again, and now you're nervous about a situation, you're not thinking, all right, I'm going to the situation. I'm going to have to use my weapon. But right. you, you are thinking all these training experiences that have led you to have to shoot and not have to pull out the pepper spray or pull You've never, you know, we rarely have training situations where you go there and it's like, all right, we're just going to you know, diffuse the situation verbally. It's always, we're training you for the worst possible thing. Let me uh, pause you on that for a second. And uh, before we get into the black perspective on the encounter, let's just, Mm -hmm. uh, let's just dwell on this police side for a moment. You mentioned training a couple times here, and that seems to, to make a lot Mm -hmm. of sense to me. A while back, I read this Malcolm Gladwell book, which was oddly relevant uh, looking, looking forward to many more incidents yeah. of inexplicable 
police brutality or police killing, you know, a guy with a cell phone or a candy bar or somebody that seems like they're not a threat. And in his book, Blink, he talked about the training a little bit and about how basically you in the moment need to make a snap judgment. And the training is the judgment to make is always preserving your own life at any cost, I guess. Now, yeah. So my question to you is: Do you is that something you see as a, just a necessity of a policing force, or is that something that could be improved upon so that the police aren't so amped up and so ready to kill and then ask questions later? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I would see it as something that could be improved upon. You know, but someone else could come in here and be like, hey, listen, you know, you go into they could have a training where they'll have us run, go into a shoe house. You have two, you know, posters, you know, one person's holding a gun. The other person's holding, like you said, a cell phone. And like you have to make this really, you know, split second decision to stop the threat. Um, You know, how do you train in a way where that scenario happens and you go there and you know do you take that is it just the extra second but then that extra second could cost you your life and so they're probably from that side are thinking hey listen we need to get this person trained so that way even a split second isn't wasted and their life is lost when they're training they're training for you to protect yourself and obviously to protect other people around there and so i don't know you know, what that, what that looks like. Cause in my head and maybe even some of the other officers in my department, they may go into that situation and they're a lot more, all right, I'm going to slow myself down. So that way, when I see this, or when I see this other person, again, I want to value them as a human being, assess the situation for that extra split second and then take action. But the way that we're trained, and again, it's, it, you could be, this could be rightfully so, but the way they were trained is you go in there, you see something, you stop the threat. And so there's times when you run into the shoot house, and I'm probably even guilty of this, where you run into this practice scenario shoot house, and you end up shooting the person with the cell phone because you see something in that split second tunnel vision. Um, and they want you to practice this over and over and over again. So that way you can go into the shoot house and identify it quickly, you know, because they'll, they'll call you back in and be like, hey, listen, this person, they had a cell phone. It wasn't, you need to take that extra, you know, so it's not saying they're going in there, but at the same time, a split second could cost. So I think there's room for improvement. I think there's ways of, of even not every situation again, and and I'm speaking for my city, not every situation is a life or death moment either, but it's just a matter of maybe training in a way that you're taking on all the scenarios, you know, all the possible outcomes, what are different ways that can, can you move to cover and then maybe, address it do you have to can you take that extra second can you maybe where it takes somebody three seconds to realize that the person has a cell phone can we cut that down to one second um where you go in there and now you evaluate it now you make your decision based off of that and the person with the cell phone is able to go home that day um cutting down the time but still not having that tunnel vision i think that's probably why they do it over and over again too is to get you to be in a scenario where you can train and evaluate with the tunnel vision going on and slow things down a little bit. So yeah, I think there's room for improvement. I just don't know what that looks like. You know. Well, well, would you, would you agree that there is a problem here on the police side? I mean, I know you're a police officer, so you're, you're going to kind of default to defending that point of view. Cause that's, that's the point of view you're coming from, but you know, do you, mm-hmm. do you see these different incidents, George Floyd, the many others before in the last wave of Black Lives Matter, as well as the current one, 
do you see these as isolated incidents that are, you know, explainable as what bad apples within the force? Um, or do you see them as, as something systemic that needs to be confronted and, and changed? I mean, how, how do you think of it as an insider here? Yeah. Training wise, could stuff be improved? Yeah. There's always areas for improvement. Can there be more training? So now people can go and evaluate these situations at a slower speed. Can you, and again, it's tough because I'm coming into a situation as a Christian. And so now maybe my perspective is coming in there and again, esteeming the other person as greater than myself. And so um, I, I'm going to automatically probably take that extra couple seconds or do whatever it takes to make sure that I'm treating them the right way. You know, in the Floyd incident, I look at that and, um, you know, as I watch that video, I, you know, I, anger comes in me towards that officer who is, um, you know, again, stuff had happened before they they wrestle with the guy they do whatever is going on and then but then it hits a certain point where you, something has to click in your head where you're like this is another human being and i need to treat them uh as such and, and that wasn't the case with the floyd one as you watch this officer you know kneel on floyd's neck for such an extended amount of time and it was unneeded you know i think of the jacob blake situation too where like i watched that and again not i didn't even know what had happened before that whole incident uh, occurred and now it comes out that you know they might have wrestled with the officer he was actually tased uh, he had a knife in his hand uh there's certain things that come up and whether or not all that was true um something definitely happened before the video you know that we watched but there was yeah. still a side of me that was that thinks in my head hey listen officers we're trained to bring peace in the situation like so so as me i'm watching the officers like why would you even put him in a scenario that he can get around to his car like you those this, we're trained in that way and so maybe they weren't trained enough um and again you tussle with the guy you, you you tase him and maybe you're just not in the right situation to to think that clearly but you want to have control over the people that are there in the situation for safety reasons. And it seemed like in that scenario, you know, and again, we can always Monday morning quarterback it without knowing the full, you know, the full spectrum of what, what went on, but more training is needed. And then. Would you say that there are a number of police officers in every precinct that are bullies that are just like in it for the sake of power or short tempered or prone to excessive, violence or whatever would you say that that's the case typically across america or in your own experience or is that kind of a misconception that people have yeah yeah uh, i remember speaking with you you had asked me you know do our police racist as a whole and the answer is absolutely no you know and again that's coming from i don't know every single police department or every single officer but just seeing the officers that i come in contact with and uh police officers as, as a whole aren't racist police officers that are whole aren't really even overly aggressive and domineering you know in a situation but there are you know, if I'm just thinking about my police department, there are officers who, you know, who maybe, again, in the heat of the emotion, maybe act out too much, maybe in the heat of that, you know, there's obviously this, this pride situation, even I could be guilty of this in certain situations where you're dealing with somebody, and for the fourth or fifth time, and, you know, here you are, you're talking to them, and maybe you're looking down on them, because it's like, well, we're back at your house again for dealing with this, this and this, or, you know, you're breaking into cars again. And so now you have this, you know, I'm superior to you and maybe looking down on them type of mentality. And whenever you have that, I think there's room for if that person tries to 
buck against your pride or if they're not respecting you in the right way, officers react in a certain way. And so I think so there are some officers who are maybe over aggressive in the way that they handle stuff. And you probably have that in every department. I think, yeah. again, my department, it's a it's a good one. I, you know, and I'm not, you know, like painted out. I'm say, have I been in situations where I was with another officer and I believe they acted maybe over aggressive than they could have in that situation? I would say yes. Um, yeah. But it's not for the most part, or the majority. It's not the case. Well, this seems to be one of the things that the Black Lives Matter movement can confront is, you know, where police officers can self-police their own officers that they know either shouldn't be police officers because they just can't handle the intensity that you described earlier of going into a situation where you know it could be kill or be killed. It very well could be, and and yeah. you have to be prepared for that. And let's face it, yeah. the way God made us, we're not made to be in those kinds of situations. That's an unnatural, difficult, mm-hmm. confusing, and error-prone kind of environment to be in for anybody. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, maybe maybe police stations can uh, sort of wash these people out, these bad apples, you know, because, I mean, that guy with, that was on uh, George Floyd's neck, you know, those other guys just stood there. And yeah. other people in the station, they probably knew this guy was prone to excessive violence or once his adrenaline's up, he doesn't calm down or however you want to say it. Like, this was probably not the first incident for that police officer. And uh, so I, I, do you think that there's a, a possibility that because of sensitivity to police brutality that police uh, stations are going to, like, self, uh, self-police self on this issue? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, again, would I, speaking for my own department, would I say it's an issue here? I would say not at all. You know, just because of, I'm thinking of incidences that have come up, it's not the case really in, in our department. Not to say that there's something, shouldn't be something that's addressed because it could come up at some point or whatever. But uh, yeah, where those, especially, this should be definitely a time where police departments look and say, hey, listen, these incidents here right or wrong in the position that the police officers are in, could they have been handled in a way where stuff didn't blow back up against, you know, you have some police departments where after the incident happened, it's just an automatic, all right, we're firing that officer. And maybe they saw grounds because they didn't follow policy or they were acting excessive, whatever the case may be. But I think that's an eye-opening thing for police departments to be like, okay, we need to look at this and we need to address it. And that's just mankind too. Like mankind automatically, like you get, cut off and disrespected on the road, you flip out like you just, and so now put that same person again, without not being a Christian, not filled with the Holy Spirit out on the street and have them respond to multiple calls where people are going to be disrespectful to you. At some point you're going to like your pride and you're, you're going to feel like you're getting attacked in a certain way. And so now you want to have police officers there, Christian or not, that are trained in a way that they don't fly off the cuff and, and flip out. Would you say this is more of a masculine issue that uh, female police officers are are less prone? I mean, you don't really see women officers getting singled out in these various incidents in the news, right? Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if it's because majority of police officers or majority of police departments are are male, and so I know there's just even as female officers coming into our department, I know that some some of the veteran female officers will tell them, "Hey, listen, you need to you need to amp it up." even more because they're going to look at you as a, as a female and they're going to go into try to, you know, maybe test the waters a little more or look down on you a little more. So maybe they're more aggressive. 
Yeah, yeah, maybe not more aggressive, but just more prone to 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 express their authority and to let them know, mm-hmm. hey, listen, I'm a police officer, and I'm not going to take any you know any garbage from you. So, uh, but you know, again, all female officers that I've dealt with, they have the the opposite end where you can see certain qualities about them where they're a little more compassionate towards the situation, or maybe a little more patient, you know. And so that's just yeah. qualities that God has instilled women with. So. Let's move on to the the black perspective of Black Lives Matter. Uh, we looked at the police perspective. Let's look at the perspective from African Americans in the United States, in particular, and uh, how they're how they're perceiving the situation. You you mentioned that there's a default sense of I guess fear and injustice, like you're being targeted. Would you like yeah. to say more about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Again, your the the fear aspect is there. Maybe they feel they're targeted. I mean, just from America as a whole. And again, it's it's tough for me to wrap my head around this because again, I didn't grow up, you know, really at any point feeling, hey, wow, I'm being. It could have been there, but I I didn't feel it or I didn't see it or I was too ignorant to it to be like, hey, listen, this person is putting me to the side because I'm a minority. Or I didn't see it with my dad where I'm like, oh wow, he's really. And again, I could have just been ignorant to it or whatever. But you know, we're what you know, sixty years removed from blacks not having the same privileges as white and so it's still like you know maybe there's still like there's remnants from it or uh you know just that systemic of you know here they are they were oppressed six years ago and they still you know feel like they're trying to get on their feet um and so if any area or if any situation just appears that it looks like it's preventing them from getting on their feet you know, they could feel oppressed, they could feel like they're being, uh, to a certain extent, you know, marginalized, or um, from the police perspective, I could see that too. And, and so many things come from that too. It's like, you know, the culture, I grew up listening to rap music, and the majority of rappers that I listened to were, they were black. And so, and a lot of rap in the rap culture was, you know, what were they endorsing? They were endorsing gangs and violence and different stuff like that. And so when you have that, stigma coming out of that culture and that's what people are seeing all the time then they automatically you know you're either if you're black you're either you know an athlete or a a rapper i feel like that was the thing stigma growing up and so you see somebody and you automatically think hey this could be that person that i saw on the six o'clock news last night that uh is wanted out of this you know here they are there and so you know with that mentality now you have black people they're getting painted into this certain group or the certain hey this person here looks like either a rapper or a criminal or uh the person i saw in the news last night or whatever i'm seeing on tv being thrown at me and you automatically paint them as that as that picture before you even get to know them you know black people could feel what are you doing why are you painting me in that picture that's not who i am why when you pull me over you're automatically assuming that i'm the bad guy here that I'm guilty um, or when you have interaction with me, I feel like it's still there. Like that, that's that feeling is still there. I can't. And that's somebody who, again, has did not see it with my dad's life at all growing up. And so is there opportunity for someone to come and, and live their life and maybe uh, and be black in a majority white culture and not and maybe not ever feel like you're painted or there's something racist going on. Yeah. I could look at my dad and I could say that's absolutely the case. And he worked his way and maybe just put blinders on to anything if it was thrown his way and just lived, you know, lived his life, but it still exists. Maybe it just didn't see it in his life or maybe we just didn't see it in the culture that we're in. But I think there is that certain thing there. And if, if it's not 
as big as they're portraying it to be, blacks still feel that way. And so for them, that's what they're feeling. That's what black people feel. They feel like the oppression's still there. They feel like they still can't get on their feet in one way or the other. Um, the socioeconomic part of it too. Uh, my dad and I had a boxing gym in Providence. And so a lot of that, a lot of the minorities, you know, they, they weren't wealthy, you know, whether or not this stems from what had gone on, you know, from 60 years ago, and they're just trying to get on their feet, trying to get on their feet. And here they are, they're in this certain area, this certain culture, they don't have a lot of money. And so when you don't have a lot of money, and maybe you have a single parent household, or even if you have both parents there, but they're both working, because they're trying to make ends meet, because they don't have enough money to pay for this and the other. A lot of the kids that would come to this community center were kids that were like, hey, we don't have anything else going on. So they would either go out and join other kids and do you know, crime, or they would have this community center to come to and actually, you know, some of them just looking for like a parental figure, just looking for something to do to stay out of trouble. And, um, you know, a lot of that just stemmed from being in a household where both parents weren't 100% present or one parent wasn't always there. Um, and so they didn't have that parental maybe structure or the fatherly structure to show them the right way to go. And so um, minorities are kind of in that. Okay. Uh, let's, what about the all lives matter and the, and the white perspective on the whole situation? I see a lot of people on social media that are very publicly taking strong positions against black lives matter saying it's some sort of, um, anti-Christian or communist or anti-capitalist or whatever organization that's, uh, plotting to destroy America. Um, and, uh, yeah. You know, then you've got other white people that are super hardcore social justice warriors, go to every march, they're willing to do, you know, anything to to help. So uh, wh what would you say about the white perspective on this? Because you are also half white. <laughs> I am. So, I am. <laughs> uh, uh Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's tough. And again, I, I probably wouldn't put myself on one side or the other side to be like, hey, listen, we should all go out there. And, you know, I wouldn't say I don't I'm not saying I'm not here. And I don't as far as the Black Lives Matter group as a whole, I, I don't put myself and be like, oh, yeah, this is like I'm in support of them. I could see all lives matter looking at them and be like, what do you you know, what do you mean? Like there's they're, they're looking maybe even in their own community or whatever, and they're seeing I don't have that. I don't have that feeling towards black people or I don't have that, you know, what are you talking about? This isn't the case. Maybe they're, and again, maybe not looking at the full issue or maybe not looking at other areas outside of their own lives and be like, Hey, listen, is this really uh, a problem here? You know, I think if you step back and you look at it, there is separation. There is, there are people, minorities that maybe they're not well off because of certain things that have happened in our country. And so anybody in the all lives matter group should be able to step back and maybe see that. I was, I was thinking of like the Irish, like the Irish were like, and maybe it wasn't on the level of like, they definitely weren't like maybe slaves, but like, didn't they, they came over here in like 1845 and they were oppressed, right? Like they were, oh, yeah. there were certain, you know, they basically they were, everybody they were was, man, they the were, Irish, the Italians, you know, the, the Polish, um, mm. You know, everyone other than the ones who were conquering, like, the, you know, the Spanish came over and conquered South America and stuff. But um, and the British yeah, came over yeah. and, you know, kind of conquered some stuff. But, uh, yeah, most of these other groups, they were just given a really hard time, excluded from mm -hmm. prominent social institutions like um, big churches or, or big opportunities. And, mm -hmm. you know, they just had to 
yeah. work in the ghetto, you know, uh, and that's what they did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember like growing up, like hearing about like Irish need not apply. Like they, they, you know, if you want a job and you're Irish, don't come here to apply for it. Or they were seen as like dirty or this and the other. And so now someone looks around and like, hey, listen, like I don't see, I don't see the Irish oppressed anymore. Like they got worked their way out of it or whatever. I think it's different now with, I think it's different with black people because you know, it's not so easy to look at somebody and be like, it's easy to still look at somebody who is a minority and be like, all right, this is a person and I'm putting them automatically in the group like that. And so do we see successful black people and black people that were able to go to school, do what they need to do to get the job and to work hard? I think we do. I think we see those success stories. And so all lives matter could be looking at that and be like, no, see, all lives, you know, all lives matter. And what are you talking about? Like when I'm not racist, I don't see in my own life, I'm not oppressing blacks or I'm not looking down at them. Look at them. They, you know, they have jobs, they're being successful, you know, black people are athletes and they make some of the most money in the world or whatever. But if you step back and look at it as a, as a whole in the country, the question is, are people being marginalized? Are they because of their race? Are people looking down at them because of their race? Are people automatically painting them in a certain situation because of their race? All eyes matter needs to, step back and look at that and say if that's true me coming back and saying no it's not black lives matter you mean all lives matter hey houses you know this one house is burning down and you go you know the firefighters show up and be like hey listen like what do you mean this house matters like all houses matter like no no this house is actually burning down like we need this house needs attention like our minorities being oppressed is there a certain thing that's going on where where blacks are being looked down upon or being oppressed because of their race. If that's a situation, then all lives matter as a response probably isn't being very sympathetic or compassionate towards it. And if it's a not issue, then uh, I guess they have a point, but I don't think we can look at America and be like, it's a not issue, you know, with all these things that are coming up. Yeah. Uh, What would you say about your faith? How does it inform you to think about this situation and, um, you know, how do you approach Black Lives Matter differently than if you weren't a Christ follower? Yeah, I think first is just having a kingdom perspective. You know, this is the big thing, you know, the thing that's broken that is in the limelight right now because of man, because of sin, because of everything that's going on. This is the thing that's in the limelight right now, whether or not it's 100% accurate and it's an issue or it's being blown up or whatever it is, uh, this is the thing that's broken right now. And so having a kingdom perspective, I think is the first point of like, okay, listen, something's going on here. And this is another reason why we need and can't wait for Jesus to return and write all this stuff. Um, So to not get 100% caught up in it and be like, this, we need to, we need to, things need to be Christians. I feel like need to be people that are spearheading, fixing any kind of injustice. Um, I think of, there's a John Mark McMillan song, but he says in the song, everybody's calling for a covenant, but nobody's drawing blood. And uh, it, it, in my head, it reminded me of this situation. Cause I was like, I think like everybody's calling for justice, but nobody's willing to actually like, put themselves out there to actually put in the work. And I feel like Christians should be those people. You know, if we think, you know, we can't look at, say like, look at our government our go- and say like, hey, does our government represent the kingdom? Our government in America, I'll let people be the judge of that, whether or not. But we as Christians, we're part of a different government. We're part of this kingdom government. If we're in a position uh, of freedom through Christ, we want to use that to help others gain their freedom through Christ. And I think the path to that, as I think of, 
you know, biblical justice. We're called to fight for the weak, the oppressed, the marginalized, those who can't fend for themselves. If there's a certain part of injustice, if this is real and true, and there's a certain part of injustice, like we as Christians should look at it, you know, see if it's true. And then if there is, go in there and do what we can to help that, to fight for those who are weak and oppressed. Do we make that our end goal or our blown up objective to try to make this world here and now? Do we expect it to be the kingdom before Jesus comes back? No, not at all. But are we pushing and fighting to be kingdom representatives in whatever way that looks like? I say yes. Uh, And so what does that look like practically? Again, end goal is ultimately it's about the gospel. I I think coming in there as Christians, if they can, obviously somebody's oppressed or getting them out of, uh, you know, restoring up a certain society. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Going into a certain neighborhood and being like, hey, listen, these schools are messed up or this is messed up and building it up. In hopes of, again, as we're doing these things, the end goal in my head is biblical justice of just leading them to, hey, listen, we care about you. We love you. We want to help out in whatever situation it is. I'm, you know, as a Christian, you know, even as a well-off Christian, we're able to come into a situation and help you out. And that may look financially of like helping them to see what it looks like to get a job or guide them along the way to get, you know, a better job or guide them along the way to, you know, get the college education that is needed. These certain steps are the path to obviously the end, the end goal. And I think ultimately it's about the gospel. I think people need to uh, hear about what God has done through Jesus and, this could be used as a great path to do it. You're going in there, you're seeing people that feel like they're oppressed. You're seeing people that are having a hard time or struggling to make ends meet or get on their feet. We as Christians should be the first ones to kind of step in and say, okay, listen, if this is the issue here, you know, we're hearing you, we love you, but we want to help you. Here's what it looks like. The help looks like practically and getting hands on, but ultimately with the goal of pointing them to, hey, this is, it's not all about this life here and now. You know, there's a God who's going to send his son. He's going to restore everything to the original paradise. And he wants you to be a part of that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, From the Christian perspective, again, I'm thinking, thinking love. I'm thinking you see injustice. You're going in there and you're trying to uh, you're trying to address that and try to use it as an opportunity. I don't know. We're just like one of the greatest times, I think, even right now with like the pandemic, the racial stuff that's going on. We are in such a great time right now as Christians to just shine as a light, and be salt, uh, where there's so much garbage uh, around and that people are, are seeing. We have such an opportunity to stand out. You know, we do our part and whatever that looks like and being led by the Holy Spirit and asking God what that looks like. is Yeah. I think, too, within the Bible, we have a lot of resources against racism, where we read how there's no Jew or Gentile or male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus, that, that these kinds of distinctions in Christ are of no value when it comes to how God sees us, when it comes to our equality before God, our our, our salvation. And, uh, you know, even the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is on old men and young men and women and slaves and, you know, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. And, you know, I I really see within Christianity itself the resources, or within the Bible itself, the resources, the intellectual resources to condemn very strongly any kind of racism, whether it's racism against black people or racism against white people or some other nationality or ethnicity. There's just no place for it when we're all in the same family of God. 
And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's that's very yeah. clear, you know, especially racism against Africans or African-Americans just doesn't make any sense from a biblical point of view. Now, I know that Christians obviously had gotten this wrong, and there are probably many today still that are that are that are harboring racism in their hearts and yet it was africa that protected our lord when he was a a little child it was africa that saved and and gave refuge to our jesus and it was an african who carried his cross uh when he couldn't do it anymore and the, the very very early on we have the ethiopian treasurer who's who's uh you know God sends Philip on a special mission just for this one man. You know, he doesn't go down to Ethiopia. He, he meets him in the middle of nowhere on this road down to Gaza and preaches to him. And, you know, uh, so there's obviously a heart that, that God has and that as Bible-believing people we should all have for Africa. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for, for any, any country, really, or, or region. But to be racist against uh, black people is just really— doesn't make sense from a biblical worldview. Now, Christianity had gotten this wrong and endorsed the very greed-based practice of slavery, of racial slavery in this country, and that is, that is you know, to our shame. I mean, that is, that is an absolute mm-hmm. embarrassment. A, a black eye on the body of Christ, it's just, yeah. uh, it's yeah. just disgusting. And, uh, you know, we do need to repent of that. Uh, I think America as a as a country has repented in its laws, at least, abolishing slavery, and then in the Jim Crow laws, getting rid of them. And there, there have been a lot of government programs to help out minorities, not just black people, but a number of different minorities in colleges. Yet you, the problem is still here. You know, I mean, there is a disparity yeah. economically. I, I, you know, I don't come, I don't come to you with any great solution here, Russell. I think, you know, what you yeah. said, sharing the gospel with people, you know, that's, that's really kind of our, uh, we might be a one trick pony as Christians, but like, that's our, that's our move. It's like, yeah. Well, yeah. look, yeah. if I yeah. give you this gospel, you know, it'll change your life. And, and, you know, now God enters in the, in the equation. We're not just dealing with what you have on your own. Yeah. Christians should spare that. If you think of the gospel, it's just, it's this pride versus humility type thing too. And it's not just, you know, we want it, we want people need to hear the gospel and we hope that they hear it and cling to it. And, you know, that's going to do enormous things in their hearts and in their lives, but also, you know, us just portraying that too, like looking like Jesus did. And so we're looking at people when you just mentioned all the stuff with just racism, like it really is pride as people it's, you're taking yourself and you're seeing yourself as greater than somebody else and you're looking down on somebody and like that wasn't jesus at all like he was you know he had a heart of compassion because he was looking at these people as you know he was loving them he was looking at them as more than himself which is it's just insane it's not the natural way to go about things um and so then on an individual basis like what is that if somebody was listening to this and they were going to go out to their day um having that same heart of looking at somebody as greater than themselves and just, you know, and that means having compassion for somebody, trying to understand where they're coming from, hearing the person out, um, seeing in what ways you can come into that situation and, uh, and help them out. I had a, uh, a minority who was at the Nickerson Community Center who, you know, I met him 10 years, 12 years later after I had trained him at this community center. He came there. We used to hang out. We used to listen to music together. Did I trained him with the boxing. And then 
Uh, I didn't see him again for 10, 10 or 12 years. I remember he had come to a couple of the fellowships that we had in Providence on Academy Ave. I brought him there. Um, didn't see him again for 10 years. And then I'm, I'm working a uh, football game, like a detail, and he's working at this, uh, this school here. And he comes up to me. He's like, hey, man, I haven't seen you forever. He's like, I just want to let you know how much you and your dad meant for me he's like he's like i lived in south providence uh i didn't have our family like really didn't have much of anything he's like i remember one time you just handed me one of your your cell phones because you were gonna go get a new one and, and i didn't have a phone you just gave me your cell phone he's like the love that i received from you guys meant the world to me and now he's he's working in a christian school his life is great but so you don't it doesn't compute in our heads but like when we're out there being jesus to people and just loving them allowing god to work that in us uh and to work those opportunities in us like we can make a great impact for people in their lives people who are oppressed people who are you know from any end of the spectrum so it's living out that gospel well thanks for sharing that story that's really really powerful and uh you know that highlights the sort of focus i think that's really helpful for christian activism uh i'm not saying that any other form has no effect i mean obviously martin luther king jr was able to do incredible things with public policy you know activism mm-hmm. targeted at public policy but i think this this individual approach is really something that is within the range of any one of us uh to get yes. involved with and uh you know how did that whole domino set of circumstances begin what was the first domino well you and your dad went down to the city i mean your dad worked his his tail off his whole life to get out of the inner city to uh have a decent situation to raise you and your your brother and your two sisters and you know but he went back and you went with him and you invested um and uh you know if we're not doing that we're not going to meet kids like this one you just described. So, you know, maybe that's maybe that's something where we need to just get off our butts, especially those of us who live in the burbs in our bubbles of extremely low crime and get into a, a, a program or get into some sort of volunteer situation that is needed. You know, maybe that's something that that, you know, we need we need to step up uh, in this time. Uh, I'm just talking. I'm talking to myself as much as anybody else yeah. here. So. <laughs> yeah, we're all. We could all talk to ourselves on this issue. I think we could all do more, man. Yeah, I mean, maybe the question should be, "What are you doing, oh Christian? What are you doing to help mm-hmm. the situation?" To take this kid that you mentioned, the impact you had on this person probably wasn't the only thing that turned things around. But if you hadn't been involved, and instead this kid was out committing crimes during that same time that he was hanging out with you instead, you know, as soon as you end up in the, the justice system and in the, in the penal system, I mean, now it's way harder to get a job. Now your contacts are criminals. And you know, what are you thinking about when when you're on the inside? It's, it's, it's probably not, well, how do I uh, straighten out my life? It's it's probably more like, well, how do I survive once I'm, once I'm on the outside and, you know, I don't have any skills, I don't have any education. So who Mm. who can I hook up with to work for under the table or doing something that's, that's not on the up and up. Mm. So, Mm. you know, these things do have ripple effects. It would be great to see more Christian activism in this sense as well. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. It's funny you mentioned that his best friend, I asked him how his, his friend was growing up that he had a sidekick with him and his best friend was arrested. I think he like robbed like a store or something like that. He's like, I went and saw him. He doesn't look the same anymore, but he was locked up. He went to the prison to go and to go and see him. So you see two people, yeah. both, both minorities from the same kind of neighborhood and one, 
one feels the love of Christ or love of God in one area and they get pulled in that direction. The other one goes in the other. So yeah, yeah, we can, we can play a big impact. So. All right. Well, that's, that's all I've got. Did you want to say anything else? No, no, that's it. Our our time is about out, but uh, thanks so much for talking with me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to, offer any comments or questions, you can come on to restitutio.org, find episode 358, A Christian Perspective on Black Lives Matter with Russell Brown, and leave your comment or question on there. I'm sure that uh, there are plenty of other issues that we haven't even taken into consideration in this episode, so I would love to hear from those of you who are more educated on this subject. Also, check out the episode from last week where Russell Brown shares about his COVID-19 experience, which was uh, really fascinating to hear a firsthand account of what he has been through and his family. Additionally, we got a new review. Uh, this is from Apple Podcasts user MYOJ71989, a real catchy name there, writes in, gave a five-star rating, and writes in, just finished listening to the episode on bias in translations. Sean does a great job of presenting complex history and content in a clear and concise manner. Uh, Thank you so much, MYOJ71989, for that review on Apple Podcasts. really does help to raise up Restitutio in the rankings so that it's easier to find and it gets recommended to uh, people who listen to other podcasts that are similar. Uh, So thanks so much for that. If you haven't checked out the class on Bible translation and and especially the issue of bias in translation, uh, go ahead and check that out, starting with episode 330 and running all the way through 353 was the, the class on Bible translation. 24 episodes, about roughly a half an hour each on them. And that's also available on YouTube if you prefer a video format. The one probably referred to in this review was episode 347, which was called Bias in Bible Translation. And this, and this is where we got into the committee effect, where com- a committee of translators basically selects out any translations that don't fit with the historical or traditional reading of a particular verse. And uh, in this way, bias gets preserved generation after generation in English Bible translations just because that's the way we've always read it or to change it would aggravate too many people. So to take a look at that episode 347 if you're interested in that topic. Thanks for that review. We'll see you next time. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. It's like the word restitution with no n.org. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.